great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and in this episode, we'll dive deep into romance fraud, which could be either an oxymoron or a tautology, depending on your perspective. When we spoke to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre recently, they told us how fraudsters are very good at what they do, and how their success is a result of their expertise and their persistence. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Carter, will provide us with an illuminating glimpse into the world of romance fraud from her recent research published in a paper, Distort, Extort, Deceive and Exploit, exploring the inner workings of a romance fraud. I'm keen to ask some questions about this paper, but I'd also invite anyone working with fraud to read it, and there'll be a link provided there in the show notes. Before we talk to Dr. Carter, though, I'll remind you that we have another basic question about digital forensics for the ever-patient Dr. James at the end of the episode. Now, I generally like to get a sense of the interesting people that we talk to by diving into their academic history to sort of look back along the path that brought them to this point. In this case, though, it really seems to me that the path was joyfully avoided. You might think, oh, so intriguing, Michael. What makes you think that? Well, for a start, Dr. Carter did two master's degrees before her doctorate. That's kind of unusual. Further, her research started out by looking at laughter in police interviews. You know, I just had to ask about that. It seemed like the most bizarre thing to look at, therefore the most interesting. Um, So as a forensic linguist, I'm really interested at where language and law intersect, where that boundary is between the two. And um, yes, for my sins, I did do two masters. But I have to say, this, this is more for a funding issue. Um, in order to then get funded for the PhD, it then came attached for the masters. And I did grumble the requisite amount. I did not take glee into <laughs> the second one. But actually, looking back now, it, it was a really good idea because it was the research methods, which is now I can then really use that. At the time, I wasn't best pleased. But in this in this intersection between language and the law, I thought that the best place really to look at was police interviews because that's where language is used. The police are, you know, the epitome of law enforcement, the criminal justice system. And there was a lot done on it already about interaction between the two. Nothing really done with real police interview data, which we'll talk about real scam data later. It's the same kind of situation. Nothing much has been done using real data there either. But looking at the police interview, I thought the most obvious thing really here is is the confession. It's the, you know, the sexiest thing people always want to look at. And I did, I did have a little look at that for the PhD, but I wanted to look at the things that were more conversational. And I used this methodology called conversation analysis, which is the really very detailed look at the way in which language is used. And it's, you know, the ups and downs of intonation. It's the pauses, the in and out breath, everything minutely transcribed. Um, it can take up to five hours um, to, to transcribe, you know, a, a one audio minute of, of data. So it's really intense. And uh, I noticed listening to this police interview data, there was a lot of laughter and it wasn't to do with humour. Uh, it's a really high stakes situation. People aren't going to be finding stuff funny. And it didn't seem like nervous laughter either, but it was forming some kind of action. Um, there was some kind of usefulness for this laughter. So I just went ahead and explored and I found it absolutely fascinating. The kinds of things that people can do with laughter in high stakes situations and this massive power dynamic between the, the police officer and, and the suspect, 
So the suspect can use laughter to kind of bolster their protestations of, of innocence. They're so innocent that being questioned about whether they were guilty of something, it's literally laughable. They will laugh in response to that. And that laughter is so powerful because they're in a really minor position in the interview. They, they are in the, the lesser of the two power positions. So for them to laugh and come out of that institutional talk really bolsters the authenticity of what they're saying. And then for police officers, police officers laughing, I found that they could do it to get around or circumvent the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, um, which in the UK governs all, all police interview conduct, you know, reading the suspect their right, letting them have a um, accompanying adult if they're vulnerable, not interviewing for, for a long period of time, giving rest breaks, not when they're drunk, all sorts of things. And one of those things is letting them have their right. And you have to read the standard police caution and the, the person has to understand it. And the suspect has a right to silence so they can say no comment to anything. However, and this is a really important part of the UK criminal justice and that right to silence. However, if you do exercise that right to silence, you, it can then be used against you later. But that's another that's another matter. So what I find is that police officers do use laughter when suspects are doing things that they don't like in order to signal to them that they shouldn't be doing it. So, for instance, uh, one suspect who didn't want to say anything, um, she was fairly young but she knew that she could say no comment. So the police officer tries to do something quite conversational and says, oh, can I call you Amy? Um, or what would you prefer to be called? And she says no comment in response to that. Now, this is really difficult for the police officer because this is kind of harming his face, really. He's offering something that's non-institutional talk. She's bringing it back to the institutional. She's taking control of the interaction. So he's lost face here. So then he then, oh, you can't even say yes to that. And then he starts. He starts laughing. And this laughter, it was quite protracted and it sounded quite forced. And after that, the, the suspect is now in a position where they feel like they can't say no comment because it's, it's been laughed at. This is something that she's done wrong. And it means that the police officer has now broken the spirit of pace. So although what he's saying, when I mean, it's transcribed, none of the laughter will be there. You don't have to transcribe it, not in the law. But really what he's done is really harmed the suspect's right here without saying it's like a non-verbal or a type of communication where you're not saying it, but you're, you're putting it across in, in non-verbal means. So I just found it fascinating because laughter does so much more than signal humour. It can really destroy someone's right um, or it can bolster someone's innocence or their perception of innocence. So this is really high stakes, you know, almost life or death kind of situations. So later on, you took that detailed analysis style and you applied it to fraud. How do you go from analysing all of the pauses and breaths and the laughter just to trying to apply that discipline to just the written word that doesn't have those things? It was really difficult, to be honest, because there's so much that's not there. I've always used to deal with only audio interaction because conversation analytic methodologies require that has to be audio data and you have to transcribe it using the methodological technique. So then to go to this these mail out floors was a real step change. But again, it was my interest in the way in which someone could persuade somebody. But in this case, it's not with the extra interactional stuff, the laughter, but it's with scant information. So you don't you don't have all of that and you can't be really openly persuasive, like you must do this right now, otherwise it puts people off. So how do people do that in one shot, really? This is not a back and forth of, say, romance board, which we'll talk about later. This is just one shot. What, what, what can you do? And I found it's the combination of language, but also the visuals, styles of writing as well. So there's a typeface that looks just like handwriting, or you can make signatures. 
even the envelopes, what do they do with the envelopes to make them look more legitimate, credible? Um, how do fraudsters drum up a sense of urgency and fear, really, in their intended victims without being so obvious that they scare people off? And, and it was a real step change. So I went from conversation analytic methodologies to more critical discourse analytic methodology and also looking at the semiotics so, you know, of signs as well. It was an interesting but quite a step change. This idea of genre mapping I, I found really fascinating. What, what is genre mapping? How does that work? Genre mapping is a really interesting thing that fraudsters do, and it's a way they can piggyback on the credibility of legitimate organisations, individuals, even organisations or even whole sectors like the charity sector. In mail-out fraud, you'll see things like times and conditions in small print at the bottom. I mean, these aren't legitimate communications. There's no need for terms and conditions. There's no legal requirement because they're breaking the law anyway. But they will have this has to be done within a certain amount of time, or um, if you're not available to collect the prize, it will be offered to the next person. All of these things genre map on legitimate communication, and it gives people a sense of reassurance that the uh, communication is legitimate. It dials down any alarm bells. Uh, because people are reassured by it, they're not then looking for, is it a fraud? And then everything else from there, it's a bit like you're seeking truth. Uh, and the truth, as far as you know, is that it's legitimate. So anything you're seeking is also going to confirm that truth. There's loads of different examples of this. And partly it's societally, it's the, it's the fault of societies, because really we are told to buy things in a state of urgency, um, panic that something's going to run out. We've got scarcity there as well. And also the idea of the bargain and you can only have it in a certain amount of time. We've all been on websites where there's a countdown to Black Friday or something. You've got 10 minutes until your basket empties and all of that. So fraudsters, they, they piggyback on this. And quite often fraud and prevention um, awareness literature tells us if you're feeling fearful or in a state of urgency, it's probably a scam. Don't touch it. But then we also have to ignore legitimate communications, which we don't. So then when a fraudulent communication comes along that genre maps legitimate practices like do this quickly, it's the limited time offer, or when we're talking about parking fines, for example, pay now or it's going to go up in 24 hours, that legitimises the nefarious practices of, of scammers. So genre mapping is incredibly powerful. It's one of the main reasons why people find it so difficult to tell if something's a fraud or not. If I was authoring my, my tax fraud communication, and I wanted to introduce a time pressure, rather than say, pay now or else, I would probably say something more like what the tax department would say. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a carrot and stick way as well. You can induce fear into somebody by saying pay now or it will increase in 24, 48 hours, which is what happens all the time, especially with you know, parking fines or, or like you say, tax fines. So that's where you can scare people into paying. But also you can induce people into paying, into getting a bargain. If you say, well, actually, the fee is this much, but if you pay within the next 24 hours, it'll be 50% of that. People just don't have the time to think about it. They just do it before they get the bigger hit for their saving money. Oh, that's interesting. That's still the same mechanism. It's still a time pressure, just, yeah, just presented it in a different way. Absolutely. I'm very interested to talk about this paper on romance fraud. And the thing that's interesting to me about this paper is rather than seeking data that is particularly broad and representative of a, a large group, you've taken the advantage of going the other direction. You've gone deep into a single case so that you can really put that high-powered microscopic um, research discipline 
onto just the the one case. What are the particular difficulties in doing that, though? Because it's it's not something I, I've seen in criminology too too often. Is it easy to do? I'm fascinated with the method, but I'm, I know nothing about how it is to actually do it. I, like I love the result, but I don't know how the sausage was made. I like the way you put that. Yes, this is based on a single case study, so one romance fraud from from beginning to end. And um, it's really steeped in the history of the beginnings of criminology, which is built on the foundation of, of case single case studies. However, since those beginnings, it has moved to where single case studies sometimes, because they're not generalizable and they are they are really deep and you go into the mechanisms of things, try and understand and unpick what's going on. They are sometimes seen as not as good, not as worthy of being published in academic journals and so on and, and attention as ones that, you know, if I had I don't know, 20 romance frauds and compared them and, and found the common themes, which is something that's much more usual. However, there's a couple of reasons why I did this. And one of them, the most basic one, is that romance frauds happen over a very long period of time. They can be months or they can they can last for years, you know, two, three years. So the amount of data that you get in here, the amount of words you have in here, you wouldn't be really be able to touch it at all if you had five, six, even more than that even two or three. And um, I did start analysing uh, a corpus of six. And then I realised I couldn't do it. Um, I wasn't doing it justice. I couldn't go deep enough. And it was more of a comparison between them, which then also throws out the whole idea that it's an individual being manipulated. And it's not one set of tactics. It is an overall grooming that happens. So that was one reason. The other reason is that Really, traditionally, people who are looking at frauds, even now, uh, romance frauds as well, look at it from the perspective of the victim. So they say, you know, what is it that makes the victim so vulnerable? What have you been doing that's made you vulnerable? And, you know, I, I have a bit of, a, of an issue with that because we're kind of straying a bit into victimology. The person didn't protect themselves enough. We've got some victim blaming going on in there as well. What I'm most interested in is what makes the fraudster so persuasive. When we all know that there are forces out there. We know the, the prevention and awareness raising literature, it's everywhere, how to protect yourself, don't give money to people you don't know, all of these things, everybody knows this. Yet people still are drawn into these, these scams and they're not stupid, they're not doing anything wrong. They're making good decisions, reasonable decisions, and they're quite often highly intelligent people. So I felt that really to do this justice and to be able to see what is the fraud doing, I had to really focus on this one romance fraud. And really, to be honest, I found it very difficult to um, compress it into a journal article. Um, I'm currently writing a book, which, and it's, this will feature in there as well, this, this case study, amongst others. But it's, it was really difficult to pick out. So I think, I think there's only seven or eight, I think, examples in there because they're quite long, because it's a long term grooming process. So I did find it a bit difficult when I submitted it to the British Journal of Criminology. I do know that there was a little bit of consternation. Um, one of the reviewers saying, well, maybe this is better for a different type of journal. And does it reflect the um, criminological underpinnings and so on? And luckily, the, the majority view was, well, actually, yes, it does. And this, this explores an area that's never been explored before. And this is the most appropriate way of doing it. So I'm quite pleased to do my bit for the case study approach. I feel your pain. There was something like 80,000 words that you were trying to condense down to get the meaning out of for a single paper. Um, so following your wishes, we're just going to talk about the fraudster and the fraud. 
we're going to leave the victim out of it for a moment. And important for a fraud is the premise. Mm. You discuss the setup and drip feed approach. Yes, this is really interesting because this is another subtle form of genre mapping that we spoke about earlier. These fraudsters will contact people on dating apps, dating websites, places where people will be meeting other people with a view to develop a friendship or a romantic relationship. And part of that is to talk to each other, build a bond, build rapport. And we do this by revealing little bits about ourselves, our likes, our dislikes, our vulnerabilities. You know, someone might say they've been scammed before. So, you know, uh, once bitten, twice shy. Fraudsters will even say that as well to make themselves appear vulnerable. And the setup of drip feed is early on in the relationship. The fraudster will, will talk quite normally what you expect from a developing relationship. So will so will their victim as well. And bear in mind, the victim here will, will be trying to present a really good version of themselves because that's what you do when you're building friendships and, and romantic relationships. But what the fraudster will be doing subtly is introducing things that they will later rely on to provide evidence for what they're doing. And uh, an example of this, in this paper, the fraudster is a boxing promoter, or they say they're a boxing promoter. And he says about how when he goes for a bid, a big boxing bid, his bank accounts get frozen quite naturally, because then if he wins the bid, the money will then be available, as he said in his, in his application. So this gives an idea to the victim, without the fraudster ever explicitly saying so, that he has times where, although he's a very successful businessman, which he always talks about, and he's a millionaire, there are times in the cycle of his workflow where he doesn't have access to money. At this time, he's not asking for money. He's not asking for anything. He's just putting it out there, just explaining his work. And then she explains her work and it gets lost to the midst of time. Later on, when he says he has no money, she's not particularly surprised because this is part of him being a good businessman. In fact, him having no money means it's tied up, means he's being successful. And it's not ringing those alarm bells that we would ordinarily associate with someone saying they have no money when they usually say they, they're very, very rich. So that's the setup and drip. They set things up and then later on they refer back to it as evidence. There's also a sting in the tail of this as well. The victim, if they don't recall or if they question what the forster is doing, the forster can then go, oh, well, you, you can't have been paying attention because we've spoken about this. So this is thrown back at the victim's door that they weren't paying attention. They weren't being a good enough girlfriend or boyfriend. They weren't being attentive enough to the relationship to understand what's going on. It really sort of designs both a person and a scenario for the eventual fraud. So the person is quite likable. They're benign. They have no need for money. All of the, the things that you might be concerned about, because people are cautious going into relationships. They're always cautious going into relationships. And this is a, a no flags or triggers period. And, and it goes for a while, right? Yes, absolutely. This can go on for ages. This can go on for three months or six months or more. With romance fraud, the fraudsters are not in a hurry. The more they can build that rapport, the more they can build that bond with, with the victim, the more the victim will end up, their reality will be so distorted that they won't even see what we would see from the outsider's really very obvious cues that this is a fraud. So they're really putting in the legwork, really, so, so to speak. But this, this time isn't wasted for the fraudster. And it won't just be the only person on the end of the line for that fraudster at the top end of the scale, if I call it that. Um, it's, this is a part of a serious organised crime group who will be doing this. And there will be many, many players involved, many fraudsters, and they'll each have several 
dozens of victims um, at the end of the line. And sometimes it's many fraudsters per one person as well, so they swap over. And what I found quite interesting is that sometimes you can see under the hood of this, you can see the cracks, um, a bit like the Truman Show, really, where you can see some things are just, you just see behind the scenes, you know, you kind of break that fourth wall. And that's when the fraudster will say something, the victim will say, you said the exact same thing last week. What were you talking about? And that's where you know that it's a different person and they're following a script, but they've just come in at the wrong point of the script. So that's where you can see it start to crumble. Um, or they'll mention something to do with God, for example, because that's a really easy hook quite often. But then they don't realise they haven't got the right notes. That the person on the other end, the victim, is so not religious that it's the worst thing you can, you can say to them. Quite often in sociology and criminology, when things go wrong, you really get an idea of, of the makeup of the situation. Right. So they forget which chat window they're in and they write the wrong thing or, or it's it's yeah. the new person coming on shift, yes. not quite caught up on what's yes. going on. And then they have to try and fix their mistakes. That's mm. wonderful. Well, it's fascinating. It is. And it's quite good, really, because for the victim, because that is when I most often see the relationship break down because it kind of it breaks that spell almost. When the victim's like, hang on, wait, what, what's going on? Because they, they've, they've been groomed into this situation. Their reality has been distorted, but it's almost like the scales have been removed from their eyes and or kind of the mirror's been flipped and they think, oh my goodness, it was all it was all a mirage. And they can suddenly see clearly for that moment. It's like deja vu in the Matrix. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. It's like, oh my goodness. And then that's it, the spell's gone. You know, you, you see the reality. But the sad thing is, quite like the matrix as well a lot of people don't want to know they don't want to wake up from it because it makes them feel good and also there's often quite a lot of pressure from friends and family members saying this is a scam and there's almost like this idea of like throwing good money after bad or you know there's this one percent chance it could be right and then I wouldn't have to feel so ashamed and people distance themselves from their family because you know they, they're trying to prove that they're doing the right thing um, so it does take something like that to kind of get somebody out of the situation. Uh, it's interesting, the sunk cost fallacy in a, in a relationship. The friends and family being something to help is, a, is an important element. How do the fraudsters counteract friends and family as a force that might prevent them from successfully executing their, their fraud? This is really interesting. The force has to be so careful because if they alienate the victim, it's if they say your family's awful, I hate them, then that, that will do the alienation. That will alienate the victim from the force. So the force has to be really careful and has to build, slowly build up this idea that the friends and the family, then they're, they're not helping the relationship. By the victim talking to the friends and family, they're harming the relationship, sometimes directly harming the mental health or the physical health of the frauds who will paint themselves in this in this position of vulnerability. So if you're, you're talking to your daughter or your mum about me, it shows that you don't really believe in the relationship. This is making me feel depressed. This is making me feel sick. And also invoking the normative relationships, the normative um, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, partnered relationship, kind of invoking that by saying, well, do you tell your friends every intimate detail of your relationship? You know, there are some things that are kept private. Let's keep this special. So kind of framing it as that. And then if the victim then goes against that, they're not valuing the relationship as special. They're not, they're not valuing it as something that's intimate. Something really quite pervasive and insidious that the forces also do is say, well, your friends are going to say this. 
they're going to say that I'm asking you for money, but actually they've got their relationship. They're happy. If you carry on like this, doubting me, doubting my legitimacy, credibility, then I'm going to be gone. I, I seem too good to be true. Don't you want something that's that's so good? And lo and behold, when they go to their friends and family and they do say those things, that reinforces the credibility of the fraudster. This is just like domestic violence and abuse and coercive control. And um, quite often the criminal justice system, victims, victim support and other agencies say, don't drive the victim into the arms of the perpetrator. And you can do that by being too strong and saying, you've got to get out. This is awful. This is terrible. There are other ways of doing it. But driving someone, shaming someone and saying, you've got to get out. This is awful. Would paint the victim into a corner where they can't really go anywhere. And they might, they might friends and family might inadvertently reinforce what the forester is saying. That, you know, they're just jealous. They're interfering. Life is better without them. The recognition of coercive control in forms of relationships seems to be something that we're starting to get a better handle on, but still very far behind. Absolutely. Yes. Um, in the UK, coercive control has finally become an offence in itself that attracts a prison term as most extreme um, at that end of the, of the sentencing um, penalties. Um, but that's relatively new and it is notoriously difficult to convict under those situations, more so, I think, than domestic violence and abuse um, because it is so insidious and, and unseen. Luckily, though, coercive control, domestic violence and abuse are almost completely rid of the shame that used to be associated with it um, and that the lack of belief in the victim has, has all but completely gone. The um, reporting um, is, is going up. Also, prosecutions are up as well, which is fantastic, um, which means, you know, these, these cases do go through the courts and, and the, the victims have lots of aftercare. Um, now, the work I've done on romance fraud highlights the, the relationship between the type of behaviour that perpetrators of romance fraud and other types of fraudulent behaviour across the board, really. You know, we talk about mail fraud, investment fraud, all sorts. I've shown that there is this direct link between the behaviours of perpetrators of fraud and perpetrators of coercive control and domestic violence and abuse. There is this grooming, there's laying the blame at the victim's door, making it impossible for them to leave, and also distorting their reality to a point where they're making decisions that, that appear really reasonable and really good. And even if you speak to them and say, these are the signs of, of a fraud, they'll look at the signs and they won't recognise it in themselves because they've been groomed to not see it. Unfortunately, though, at the moment, the criminal justice system in, in the UK and worldwide doesn't really recognise this. Um, narratives are changing in the UK and, and further afield now, but the legislative mechanisms haven't really caught up. So fraud in the UK, it takes up more than half of all crimes. I think it's um, one in five crimes of fraud in the UK, and um, it's, it's the, the largest crime type. However, it's estimated that only 5% of victims report that they've been a victim of fraud. A lot of that is to do with the sense of guilt and shame and I should have known better that goes with it. And that is associated with this coercive control and grooming. Once you're out of it, you think, oh, it's so obvious. When you're in it, it's not obvious at all. And you are, you are a victim of this coercive control. Unfortunately for victims, it is difficult to report. Um, action fraud um, is going, which is the one place where you can, in the UK, you can report this. That's going. 
and you can still report to your police, you can still access victim support and citizens advice. But there's no dedicated place for people who are victims of this type of crime to go for aftercare. And there is this recognition amongst the police and the financial industry that it's not just a financial crime, it is also a psychological crime, but we just don't have the mechanisms there available. Luckily, because we do have the mechanisms for coercive control, domestic violence and abuse, it is just a case of doing something very similar for these, these victims too. So there is, there is a roadmap there. So there, there is hope. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> it got very depressing there. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about what, what you just said. And, and from, the, from the case study, I really got the impression that the, the person on the receiving end of all of this was a very reasonable person who was cautious and skeptical of the relationship to the point of straight out saying that they weren't going to give the, the offender money in particular points. But it seemed like every time they exercised that suspicion, that got turned to the, the advantage of the fraudster. That, that was used as an opportunity to reinforce this alternative reality. Being someone who's given advice for people to avoid cybercrime, I feel like the advice of be suspicious when entering into these relationships is probably not going to help. Can you think of any advice or different kinds of things that I that I should or, or could say that might be more helpful? Yes, well, I think this is the $365,000 question really here, but there are some things. You're quite right. Fraud prevention and awareness raising literature doesn't quite hit it. In fact, sometimes, sadly, it reinforces to a victim that they are in a legitimate relationship because they're not giving money to people they don't know. They are doing what's normal in a relationship and giving money to their significant other in a kind of reciprocal thing, or they're giving money to themselves and, and to this other person as well. Um, so it's all, it's all manipulated so it doesn't look like what it is. So what I would say is that instead of saying stop the relationship, protect yourself, um, I, I would say be curious. Ask for curiosity. Engage people's curiosity rather than saying this is a scam. Look for suspicious activity because none of it's suspicious. All of it is genre mapped. All of it is in the right kind of situation at the right kind of time. There's a fraud for everyone, by the way. You know, you get an email through saying, oh, your parcel hasn't been delivered. If you're expecting a parcel, you'll click on the link. You know, there's something there for you. So instead of being suspicious, because suspicion is, is taken away, be curious. Think to yourself, does this feel okay? You might not even know if it feels okay or not. So keep your friends and family close, always. Um, it's a bit odd because in a, a normal relationship, in a relationship where you can, you know, go out and speak to somebody and go for dinner and develop that relationship face to face. If you're doing it online, and you've never seen the person properly or, or met them at all. The rules are slightly different. You will need to have people closer into the relationship than you would if you were in face to face relationship. And I think that's OK. What I would also do is give more guidance to friends and family members rather than somebody who might be a victim because they can do, they can support a lot. They can be enthusiastic about the relationship and help the victim become curious about it. Like, oh, right. Oh, OK. So you, you, you paid this money. What's that for? Oh, OK. Did that come off OK? And things like that and get the victim thinking about it rather than this is a scam, which will then drive a wedge 
Also give the victim tools to be able to find these things out themselves. Like I said earlier about um, when things go slightly wrong, when it's another another fraudster that's taken over and they've picked up the wrong part of the script and suddenly it kind of reveals the reality, it breaks the illusion and then the, the, the victim is free from it. They think, oh, hang on, I know what's happening, I'm, I'm gone. And they're furious about it, but they, they, they stop it themselves. If you give the victim them tools to be able to do that themselves in a non-judgmental way it's really powerful for example say oh you know i found out this new thing called tin eye um, um, or any other kind of software where you can uh, do a reverse image search you put the image into a search engine and then it comes up all other instances of exactly the same picture or like pictures come up if a victim does that and they find the love of their life is also called 10 other different names you know, there's 10 other different identities that will then break the illusion as well. It will then also give them power because something that's quite damaging is somebody finding out they're a victim of any crime, let alone one that has been perpetrated by someone that they've given their love to and they think they're going to spend their life with. So it's going to be really damaging to them. So giving them the sense of ownership over it and empowerment, really, to be able to find out themselves with appropriate support is is really useful. Um, I'd also say there's no hard and fast answer really either. Try these things definitely, but there's no hard and fast answer because every case is different and it is it is individual grooming. Um, I did do a, a fraud prevention and awareness raising leaflet with Thames Valley Police in the UK, and that was my attempt to try and rectify some of the myths around romance fraud in particular. And what I did, I used this paper actually. And what we did with Thames Valley is take some of the quotes and put them in speech bubbles um, and make it really accessible. So the types of ways the fraudster tries to manipulate their victim is made really clear. And it's not specific to one case, which is great because every case is different. But it talks about visceral responses, talks about genre mapping, um, what to do, what to do with your friends and families. And the important message that, you know, it's not your fault. They're not to do intelligence or anything like that. So I think that's quite a good place to start. Um, I have to say one of the most happiest moments of my professional career is when I got told by someone from Essex Police, because it's been adopted across quite a lot of police forces around the UK. Someone from Essex Police got in touch, an officer saying that they had do a, they'd done a home visit with a victim of romance fraud that, that had already lost about, I think it was £60,000. And there'd, there'd been several times. And this time they came with a romance fraud questionnaire and also that leaflet that I'd done with Thames Valley Police. And he said that was the light bulb moment for him when he realised that actually he is in this relationship and he is a victim of crime. He was surrounded by people who could help him. And that for me is, I think, just the best thing ever, really, just to reach somebody. And that's all, you know, you don't hear of all the cases, but to hear that it has the potential to make that difference, to kind of switch that light on and say, this isn't right. You can let go of this and it's okay. You know, you haven't done anything wrong. It's okay. I think is is everything, isn't it? That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to, to chat with me and uh, I look forward to your future research. Thanks, Thanks for having me. If you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from how much RAM a laptop should have to the going rate for cocaine on the darknet. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to pester an expert, and we happen to have cornered one on the subject of digital forensics. Dr. Joshua James is a trainer, lecturer, and consultant for digital investigations, 
And somehow, while training police officers and consulting for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, he's also managed to maintain a great blog and a YouTube channel, both called dfir.science. Dr. James is also good at tolerating my stupid questions, so we'll take advantage of that and we'll ask him this. What if you have two different digital forensics investigators analyze the same data? How does the court deal with that? Because they're not guaranteed to come up with the same answer, right? Just like analysis of, of physical evidence, um, you can send, for example, DNA to two different labs and you might get potentially a different answer, right? So we have error checking basically put in place to kind of deal with that as much as we possibly can. And then you just have the interpretation factor. So an investigator, I mean, their main job, whether they're dealing with physical or digital evidence, is to build the story of the investigation, right? Um, so we'll, we will observe what's, what's on their device and then use that as evidence to build some sort of story that it's based off of. Now, the defense, for example, might be building a different story, right, with that exact same evidence. So, um, yeah, two different experts can come in and uh, put forward two different stories. Now, the real question is, just like DNA evidence, you shouldn't be able to derive different pieces of evidence from that data. So that data on, on a hard drive, for example, a file on a hard drive, that file exists, okay? So no matter what your, what your interpretation of it is, that file exists. Now, what that file means in terms of the case can be different depending on what story you're trying to put forward and what other evidence you have with it. But I don't think any expert can question in most cases where that file exists and, and that it does actually exist, just what it means. Now, the problem comes where if you have two different experts and one is saying that the file exists and one is saying the file doesn't exist, now we have a problem, okay? And then this is where external experts can come in and kind of be the third party and say, yeah, this person didn't find it, but it definitely does exist. I mean, really, that question is is fairly similar for even traditional investigations where we're looking at multiple pieces of evidence. We have experts with different tools, different experience, different motivations coming into the investigation. They are trying to say whether something is true or not, depending on whatever claim they're putting forward. And that's exactly the same for digital evidence. The question, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is about the interpretation of the data by the tool itself, for example. So maybe one investigator doesn't find out that a file exists. Well, it could be that that person just missed it, or it could be that the tool that they're using did not interpret the raw data, the lowest level data representation, in the correct way. Like I said before, when dealing with digital evidence, our tools can introduce error in interpretation of the underlying data. And if that's the case, then we might not actually find a file that, that does exist on the system. So malware is a really good example of this, where malware can come in and manipulate the operating system, manipulate the file system to hide itself. Well, if the malware is very new and we don't know about it, it could potentially manipulate our tools as well. Maybe our tools just don't detect that that's there, right? Because we don't know what, what techniques they're using. So whenever we use specific tools to go through a system, we might not actually detect that that piece of malware is on the system. Now, we also have ways, of course, around that because we, we deal with this kind of thing all the time. And that is basically don't rely on a single forensic tool. 
the big commercial forensic tools will do a lot of things uh, to help the investigator do investigations very quickly. But common practice is not to rely on just one tool to do everything. After they start processing with one tool, then we'll start other processes. For example, using a different tool to extract all of the files from a system. So now you have two tools with two different file extractions. And then sending, for example, all of those files to kind of like an antivirus to detect if new types of malware might be detected in that that weren't found in your other tool. Basically, it's using multiple tools, multiple procedures to verify that the data you're working with is as complete as possible because there is a chance for that error. So it is fairly common to use multiple tools um, kind of competing against each other. And whenever you find that something is, let's say, finding a file and one of them is not, then you have to figure out which one's interpreting it correctly. Okay, And then that requires more research and... There's a whole research community around that problem, too. Big thank you again to Dr. Elizabeth Carter for chatting with us about her research into fraud and romance fraud. And a reminder that there will be some links in the show notes to both the papers mentioned in this episode and that romance fraud e-booklet that she developed for the police in the UK. Dr. James will be back next episode to answer another question. But in the meantime, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's really only made possible by the kind guests that share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com, and you can leave me a note or a message at cybercrimology on Twitter.